Welcome back to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. I'm one of your hosts, Renee Rethel. Today, we continue our interview with Louisville's own Raymond Green. Mr. Green is the principal of Central High School in downtown Louisville. Keith and I are so excited to have him back this week as we dive into more issues of education in America. So we talk about uh, a lot about the lack of diversity in teaching and administrative teams in schools. In 2017 through 2018, only 7% of public school teachers and 11% of public school principals were black. Yet more than 15% of black students attended public schools. You talked about your staff being diverse. We kind of want to touch on how diverse it is and uh, have you talk a little bit about how diversity in teaching staff makes the difference uh, in student performance. Kids, kids need to see folks that looks like look, looks like them. You know, I don't know any other way around that. And conversely, children of all races need to see people of color teaching and in administration, because we don't see a lot of authoritative leadership in in media. We don't see a lot of that, and it is so important that kids see students of color see kids that look or adults that look like them other than bus driver cafeteria and custodial not to diminish those tasks because those are crucial right like so please don't mishear me i'm not diminishing those however we have to have more black teachers we have to have more black administrators hispanic teachers hispanic administrators Asian teachers, Asian administrators. We have to have more of that because it reflects the world that we live in. And it, and it. Did you know, in a Brookings Institute report on the importance of a diverse teaching force, using data from the American Community Survey, they show that in 2015, just over half of American children aged 5 to 17 were white, but nearly 80% of young teachers, whom they define as individuals ages 25 to 34, with a bachelor's degree and teaching at the pre-K through high school level were white. Meanwhile, while black students comprise around 13% of all school-aged children, black teachers represent only around 8% of all young teachers. And while Hispanic students comprise around 24% of all school-aged children, Hispanic teachers represent only around 9% of all young teachers. Asian teachers are slightly underrepresented relative to the percentage of Asian students in the population. There's so much going on in the child's development of what's normal during school. Uh, And if it's normal for a child to see that, then as they become adults, they expect normal, you know, and it's so crucial that kids see that. Beyond the the formation of of their normal, or Dr. Montessori calls a normalization, you know, but beyond their normalization, Uh, beyond students normalization that is it is direly crucial that kids see somebody that looks like them because it it speaks so much to a child's comfortability you know we often forget when we become adults we forget how awkward and and uncomfortable particularly the adolescent years are like 12 to 18 that plane of development from 12 to 18 is so uncomfortable and if there's any kind of barrier that we can remove to help a child have someone they can trust that they can reach out to to talk, to listen, to ask a difficult question, then then that's great. I think we need to do that. So that's really kind of been what's kind of guided a lot of our work at Central. Uh, we are, our 
certified staff is 30% African-American. The last time I checked of all the high schools in JCPS, that was the highest of all the of all the high schools. And I wish it were more than that. Uh, you, you have to get out there and recruit. You have to get out there and, and look for great teachers and, and also great administrators. Uh, myself and uh, we have four assistant principals. Three of them are black. We have three counselors. One of them are black. And I think it's important that that schools are very intentional. Now, what I have experienced and a lot of my colleagues have experienced is that there just aren't a whole, whole lot of black folks coming out of teacher school or coming out of principal school. And so one of the things that we've done here at JCPS is really try to say, OK, how can we start to raise our own? How can we start to say, just like we expose kids to law and to medicine and STEM, we need to expose kids to teaching. And uh, and so at Central, we're in our second year of starting uh, our teaching and learning uh, career program uh, where we want our kids are taking dual credit courses at U of L right now. You know, we going back to that early question about the achievement gap. There's a workforce gap uh, and we have to get more folks of color into the teaching ranks so that we then have more folks of color in the administrative ranks. It's just how it works. And it's only it's only going to happen through intentionality. And again, I, I keep using this word drifting. We're not going to drift into oh, wow, look at all these, you know, qualified black candidates. That's just not how it works. I'm in education because at the time, the band director at Ballard High School encouraged me to do it. Uh, I needed a job and I wanted to teach some private lessons and he was really encouraging. And uncoincidentally, he's another black man. And every chance I get, I say, if I see a, a, a kid that's undecided on college, I'll say, hey, what, what do you like the most? What, what's your favorite subject, math? Oh, really? You can work anywhere in this country teaching math. You know, like facts. You can teach. You can live. You pick the city you want to live in. I guarantee you, they need a science teacher. I guarantee it. Where do you want to live? <laughs> you know. And so, the more we, the more we can encourage that uh, in kids, and then have systems behind it. Uh, you can't just encourage. You have to say, okay, what's the system the child's going to be in, starting in high school, so that we can get them on an early pathway to teaching. And Kisa and I have talked a lot about this. We, I have black children and Kisa, of course, has black children and they've been in predominantly white schools throughout the years. As you're talking about this, I was thinking about my own education. I never once had one black teacher mm. growing up or in college, not one. Um, oh. And I don't think I've ever thought about that, but to think about it in relation to my own boys and I know when our oldest was in middle school, we took him out of public school in our district and put him in private because we need, we put him in a private school that had several black teachers because we knew he had white parents. He needed black teachers. So thank you for talking about all that. It's, it's really interesting to me to figure out how we can get more black teachers and black administrators. It's really hard to admit that I never had one black teacher throughout my educational career, elementary through college. That's why as white parents of black children, it was paramount for my husband and I that our boys attended schools that had teachers who looked like them. Yeah, I mean, this is, this. I can, again, I, I mean, well, y'all messed up. See, a principal never met a microphone he didn't like, okay? <laughs> okay. I can talk about this one too. I mean, it's such a, such a dire need that we have where kids can see folks that look like them. I just can't stress it enough. Yeah. The, the power that that has, you know, what really quickly, one of the exercises we took our faculty through recently, it was actually not too long before the pandemic hit. And we did this extra exercise called a seat at the table where, where on a chart, we wanted to have our teachers start to think about 
you know, what does it mean to have a seat at the table of your own education? Because so many times that the, I don't care where you are, unless you're in a very progressive, holistic school, it's it's very authoritarian. The kids have no say, no, no. The kids have no authority over their learning, no agency over their learning. And so that's that's something that we believe in and that we're working towards. And so this whole idea of having a seat at the table starts with on a chart, say, what was the first time you had a black teacher or black administrator chart that K through 12 or K through 16 chart that what was the first time you were aware of race in school chart that what was the first time, you know, and so we had this conversation and then you take those data and, and, and you put that kind of data on a graph and you see the experience, the collective experiences of a staff and how that influences our practice. Then you start to get some really strong takeaways about, you know, and implications for how we need to interact with our kids. This whole idea, back to the thing about representation, the representation goes beyond having the, the like a, a target number, a target diversity number. Like that's good to have, mm-hmm. but awareness of the numbers that you do have and how that influences the, the practice. Yeah. I think that's, that's richer. You know, if I were a principal in rural Kentucky with zero faculty, but there were migrant workers who went to that school who didn't see anybody that looked like them, then the conversation has to switch about how do our experiences influence our practice and and how does that practice influence our children? You know, you see what I'm saying? Because I can't make you they'll crank out more teachers of color, Hmm. but I but we can have reflection about how our experience impact impacts our our practice. That's real that's really good. Yeah, that's so good. Our seven year old son I don't know if I even told you this about the, about this Kisa the other day, I, I wish I could remember the situation, but there was something on the news or something he saw and the person involved doing a really, really great thing. Gosh, I, I don't remember what it is. That's the week it's been, but someone was doing a really great thing and it was a black person and the smile on his face, he was like, mama, that person looks like me. I said, yeah, he does. Isn't that so cool? And it was just one of those real life experiences for me as a white lady. Like, this is really important. It's really important. Did you know, statistically, Black boys have led the country in suspensions, expulsions, and school arrest. And the disparities between them and white boys have been a catalyst for national movements for change. But Black girls' discipline rates are not far behind those of Black boys. And in several categories, such as suspensions and law enforcement referrals, the disparities between Black and white girls eclipse those between Black and white boys. In Florida, Kaya Roll was only six last year when police officers escorted her, hands bound behind her with zip ties from her school in Orlando after employees there said she had a temper tantrum. In Sacramento, the first virtual suspension to draw national attention was meted out to a nine-year-old black girl who was kicked out of her Zoom classroom for reportedly sending too many messages. In Michigan, a teenager was sent to juvenile detention for not completing her online schoolwork. We have all by now heard stories of black students being punished at disproportionate rates. We've talked about the school to prison pipeline on this podcast before, specifically when it comes to black boys. But we wanted to talk to you about this report that came out this fall. A 2020 study by the Education Trust and National Women's Law Center reports that black girls are five times more likely than white girls to be suspended. Oftentimes, black girls are seen as needing less protection, less comfort, less nurturing. 
Have you seen this happening throughout your career and how do we combat this disproportionate punishment of black children in the schools? So this topic of um, black girls in particular is, is a big one. It's really big. Uh, over, uh, let's see, this is my 16th year, okay, in, in education. Uh, I've been the principal at Central for the last six years. And so I was an assistant principal for three and I taught for seven. I wish I could, uh, like, uh, just anecdotally, I can't say that, that black girls have had it harder from my lens. Mm-hmm. I can't say that anecdotally. However, when you look at data across the country, black girls are suspended more than any other demographic group and have disproportionate uh, uh, negative punishment as opposed to redirection or opposed to, I mean, the, the, the research is clear that adults bring bias to the school. And if left unchecked, the black girls suffer from that bias more than any other group. That's not a central issue. That's, that's from Miami to Anchorage, Miami, Florida to Anchorage, Alaska. You know, that, that's a U.S. issue. There are things that can be done to help mitigate that and to, you know, lessen and even erase that. It starts with, you know, I would call it simple. It used to be a, a forward thing, but, you know, implicit bias training. Like people sometimes just need to be made aware that we bring our like our own experiences influence how we are. And our experiences don't align to other kids' experiences, particularly when the largest demographic in education in America is a is are white females, uh, and white females' experiences are nothing compared to or nowhere near black female experiences in this country. I think this whole topic of you know what black girls experience is combated through training. But also uh, something that is another pillar for us in JCPS, and that is culture. I'm thankful that our superintendent has forced that issue, that we talk about, not just talk about culture. It's a pillar for us. Like, it's a, it's a thing. I guess the, the simple definition of it would be, what's normal? What, what are the normal interactions within a school? And if it's normal uh, for, a, for a school to expect, you know, a pound of flesh when a child rolls their eyes, then that principal and that faculty have established that as normal. And those parents and the PTSA, everybody says, yep, that's normal. That's what we want around here. Or or, uh, because that's what school is and that's how we define school. Or is it normal to say when a child gets into a fight, we're not going to suspend you from school. You're going to have cleanup detention every day for a week because we use our hands to be productive and you're not going to miss academic time because you got in a fight. Yeah. Is that normal? You know, And, and it really this whole idea of, you know, there are there are schools in our country and JCPS that have said, we're not going to have a punitive approach to discipline because discipline is, you know, you break down the etymology of the word discipline. It's not punishment. Um, It really is self-control. It's, it's a teaching. Discipline is teaching. And, you know, when we think about when a child can't solve for X, what do we do? We teach them and they figure it out. You know, when a child can't conjugate a verb, what do we do? We teach them how to conjugate a verb. When a child struggles with behavior, what do we do? We suspend them. (laughs) Like, no, you teach them. According to Teachers Unite, which is a movement of public school teachers fighting for social justice and punitive punishment towards students, they believe suspensions, aggressive policing, and reactive strategies go against human rights and fail to address the real problem. However, 
Preventative and constructive approaches that use positive discipline create a positive school atmosphere and also teach a student's conflict resolution and behavior skills. In the end, positive discipline can help shape a child by using encouragement rather than meaningless and even painful consequences like punishment. You teach, and teaching behavior is hard work. It's much easier to say suspension, and sometimes suspension is appropriate, like, don't get me wrong. If you bring a weapon inside Central High School, uh, you are being suspended, okay? You, you cannot bring drugs inside my school. You cannot bring a weapon inside the school. However, that can't be the, the, the go-to every single time, you know, or the first go-to. Black girls, we, we've got to figure out, again, that's a, that's a demographic that is a surplus of brilliance. It's a surplus of brilliance. I love uh, the um, the story that came out. What was that movie uh, with the uh, the space uh, hidden figures? Hidden figures. Thank you. Like I love that. I love that story. Man, black black girls put man on the moon. Yes, sir. Like you know, like we're we're missing out, Madam C.J. Walker. You know, like let's tell the story of what black women have done in this country. With little to no resources, yes. <laughs> in the face of, like, in the face of massive opposition, both systemically, systemic opposition, uh, you know, anecdotal opposition. It doesn't matter the type of I just, yeah. but still, no. Still, I rise. Still, I rise. <laughs> I mean, don't get me started on this thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> because yeah. All right, I'm sorry. But we're, we're sitting on a surplus. We're sitting on a surplus of brilliance. Yeah. All right. And that's that's the way I I'm, I'm trying to call like it's a we, we have a surplus of untapped brilliance that we haven't tapped. Principal Green touched on black women's innovation with little to no resources in the face of opposition. With this being Women's History Month, let us touch on the contribution of just a few black women in history. Did you know? Dr. Shirley Jackson's work led to innovations such as touch-tone phones, portable fax machines, and the fiber optic cables that make your long-distance phone calls come in crystal clear. She was the first Black woman to earn a doctorate from MIT, the first Black female president of a major technological institute, and went on to become the first Black woman appointed chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Sister Rosetta Tharp was one of the first people to combine gospel music with melody-driven urban blues, traditional folk, and a unique pulsating swing style. Today, Tharp's musical style is considered one of the first definite precursors of rock and roll in the 30s and 40s. Valerie Thomas, a physicist, inventor, and NASA data analyst, she invented the technology which went on to become the premise for more advanced TV screens and modern 3D technology. In the late 70s, Thomas discovered that concave mirrors can create the illusion of three-dimensional objects and began experimenting with how she could visually transmit the 3D illusion. In 1980, Thomas patented her illusion transmitter. That un untapped surplus of brilliance, I love that and our young black girls should know that. But when he was talking, and I'm sure Renee, you were thinking about this, our healthcare episode mm -hmm. with Dr. Wright, mm -hmm. talking about how black women, black girls, the trauma that we experience, it doesn't matter if you live in the inner city, it doesn't matter if you live in the suburbs and how that affects you know, the maternal uh, death rate, uh, our healthcare, you know, uh, how we 
how we are, you know, physically so much affects black women and the stress and trauma of just living in America as a black woman. So it has to affect, you know, young girls when they're in school and how they learn and their, 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 their attitudes and their performance, because you may not know what's going on at home that's causing the stress or causing trauma to make them behave in the way that they, uh, that they behave. And so that was super eye opening. But I love the positivity that you all are what you just said, man, the surplus of 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 excellence, the surplus there with with black girl, man, tap into that. That's yeah. I love That's it. what I want to know as black girls, do they know like Kisa, we've talked about this from your lens and your experience. Like, do you know that you're brilliant? Do you know <laughs> that you're an image bearer of God or has this country messed you up so much that you can't even be confident in the classroom. You can't be confident when you walk into those spaces. I'm just, it's not my experience, obviously, but I'm just curious if that's the sense of everything you said, Kisa, plus are, are they, are black girls confident? I, I think one of the things that I have seen you, one of your, in your question, you asked me about, you know, like, what have I seen? Well, I'll tell you what I've seen, like when it works, when, when we do tap into it, it's because an adult made a choice to say, you know what? I see you for who you are. I, you don't have to conform to my expectation of who you should be unless that expectation is your, your excellence, right? Unless that expectation is like, it's not, I'm not, you're, I'm not talking about your hair has to conform. I'm not talking about your clothes have to conform. It's when, it's when teachers and administrators say, I can see who you really are. I can see like, you don't have to fake. You don't have to. I, I just I've seen it work. I think we've given a lot. I think we've given enough. We know that it doesn't work. We know that we know that we have examples of what doesn't work. We have not done enough work about promoting and uh, celebrating and trying to take to scale what does work. You know, everybody reads Ruby Payne and they're an expert on poverty. You know what I mean? Or, you know. Like, no, man, we, we need to get down inside, like, fine. I'm, look, Jackie Nelson is a ninth grade English teacher at Central High School. And when you walk in her classroom, man, she is like, she's the perfect mix of old school and new school. Like, listen, Jackie Nelson is that mama bear who's going to love you tough. All right. She is on your case. She's on your side. She loves you for who you are. But guess what? You're going to learn this English and I'm going to teach it to you. And you ain't gonna mess around in my classroom. And I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to teach you. And so that might mean if you step out of bounds, I'm gonna, we're gonna talk, go to the hallway for 15 seconds. I'm gonna get your mind right. And then we're gonna come back in this classroom and you're gonna learn because I love you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's it. And you move on and you move on. When teachers and administrators see their students, it can make a difference. We need more teachers like Jackie Nelson. Hearing how she loves her students but requires them to do what is right reminds me of Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So we know the poverty rate is highest for black students. We know that many black students don't have internet access at home. We also know that school dropout rates remain high among black students. We here in Louisville have yet to return to in-person classes due to this pandemic. 
And we heard a stat on WFPL, our NPR station, last week that more than 70% of English language learning students are failing at least one class right now. Many of those students are Black and Hispanic. How are our students of color doing during this uh, time of non-traditional instruction? It's rough. Well, there's no sugarcoating this one. It's rough. This one's rough. Uh, you know, sometimes as, as principal, you, you've got to make decisions that you feel like are best. And if, if I could hit the rewind button on something, you know, uh, back in the spring, I'm sorry, back in the fall semester, you know, I just kind of had a pulse on the school and I heard from too many students that mental health and wellness was in the gutter. And so we had a wellness week where we stopped live instruction and we focused on wellness and the kids whose grades were on par. Then we had some acceleration activities and some wellness activities for them, the kids who were not on par. Uh, there was no new work giving, no new assignments given that week. And we said, we need to, we're going to use this week to get caught up. This is your catch up week to address wellness, to address, because now, did I get a little heat over that? Mm -hmm, I did, because, you know, you can't deviate from what everybody else is doing. And I understand that we're like, we're part of the school system, you know, and hey, why Central get to do that? Like, I get it. You know, like, that's why I wish I would, if I could go back and do, do it all over again, I, I would do it differently, you know, but at the same time, you know, like so, so many school leaders and district leaders at the start of this pandemic said, we need to take our, lear our lessons learned from distance learning because distance learning has been going on for a long time. Online learning has been going on, but this is not online learning or distance learning. This is pandemic learning, which is not the same. Usually when you have pan uh, online learning or distance learning, that person chose to be there. They want to be there. They know they do well in that setting. And Everything else in their life is, quote unquote, normal. In this situation, mom or dad or auntie or somebody may have just died from COVID and now I've got to work, but I still am taking eight classes online. That's another thing, too, with online learning. No, like if you're getting a master's from UofL online, you're not taking eight classes at, at one time. Our kids are taking eight classes online in the middle of a pandemic. And we talk about poverty. Central has the second highest number of students that are free and reduced lunch, which is, you know, proxy for poverty of, of high schools. That is, if you, <clears throat> I think it's like 86% or some 80% of our kids, wow. you know, so you think about that and it's like, man, uh, it's not like our kids are sitting at home, you know, uh, not some, some are, look, look, we've got, we've got affluence in our school. So don't, uh, don't mishear me, but we also have deep poverty in our school where the lights may not be on. There may or may not be, food in the fridge. And like, you know, I think it is incumbent upon schools to keep a firm pulse on the wellness of their students, their mental wellness, because I just look at my own kids who have two educated parents and live a comfortable life who miss their friends and the impact that has. You, you take that coupled with everything else the pandemic has thrown. You know, we just lost a teacher to, to COVID. The effects of COVID are cumulative and our, our black and brown students are struggling. I mean, hard. And I think it is the school's job, number one, above all else during this time, to keep a pulse on their wellness above everything else. Did you know, according to a Brookings article, American students were experiencing widespread mental health distress long before the COVID-19 pandemic took hold. A tragic expression of this distress, youth suicide has been on the rise for the past decade and is now the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds. 
Now, the pandemic is making matters worse. In a recent survey, over 80% of college students reported that COVID-19 has impacted their lives through increased isolation, loneliness, stress, and sadness. Although it's too soon to conclusively link national youth suicide data to the pandemic, school districts across the nation have been reporting alarming spikes in both suicide and attempts at self-harm. Mr. Green, thank you for giving us your time. Oh, thank you all for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And if you still have uh, middle school age and younger children, Central High School is open for enrollment. We accept <laughs> applications every fall. Now you, you got a good, you got a Central commercial for the last hour now. I love it. I love it. I love it. Send That's them all. Awesome. We'll love them. We'll love them, and we'll teach them. Okay. Oh, I love that so much. We've got a few years on our little man, and our oldest is almost done. So, yeah. it's in the books. For sure. So. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Green. Keep up such the great work and being such a great steward for your kiddos and just being a great, a great person in our community. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for what you do and uh, wish y'all the best. Join us next week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Envision Radio. Remember to be humble, to be kind, to be a good listener, and to be courageous. Two Mamas in a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Holke and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at twomamasinamustardseed.com. Sunshine still